Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-chronicle, pro-John Lithgow podcast, where we stake the list for better or worse. This week we have moved into a very different sphere. We've talked about kind of some serious movies recently, and more genre-specific stuff. This is an out-and-out comedy. None yeah. of this dramedy, mixed-genre nonsense. This is just, you know what it is. Yeah. Um, so we have watched 21 Jump Street. No, not the original television series. The new sort of satirical films are based upon that franchise. Uh, before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Well, I mentioned last week that there are a few things I'd seen last week that I'd forgotten to take notes for, and so I'd be saving them for this week. And it's a good thing I did, because uh turns out we've got a fairly jam-packed schedule over the next little while, so I've had to divvy them up, um, divvy some stuff up. And uh, I'm left with only two things to talk about this week, uh, one of which I did did see last week and, and forgot to take the notes for. It is uh, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. It is a dystopian thriller directed by Francis Lawrence. It's based on the book of the same name by Susan Collins, and it's set decades before the main Hunger Games trilogy. And basically the premise here is what if Donald Sutherland was once a hot blonde? Nice. Um, his character is a young man here, Coriolanus Snow, played by Tom Blythe. He's the orphaned scion of a reputable family who uh, the patriarch and, and matriarch uh, were killed off in civil war. Um, and it's he's now a young man and it's, it's years after the capital has regained control of the situation and they're now doing the Hunger Games. They're getting all of the poor people to send their kids in to make sure they don't have an uprising again, really put the fear of God into them. Um, but uh, Coriolanus is trying to get a prize at his university, a scholarship essentially, because his family is near bankrupt. But at the last minute, the rules are changed. It will not be going to the person with the greatest academic success. It will stand, instead be awarded based on the kids' mentorship of the poor kids that have been selected to take part in the Hunger Games. Uh, this has happened because apparently ratings are falling. And so um, the powers that be are trying to find ways to spruce it up and you know it the whole propaganda thing doesn't really work unless someone's watching it um but uh, Coriolanus is assigned a feisty singer named Lucy Gray Baird played by Rachel Ziegler and he falls for her I find this to be a very compelling prequel to the series. It, it doesn't do the usual prequel thing that you expect to see in, in so many different franchises of seeing the different pieces moved into play. So how is this going to set this up? It's not, a, it's not about that. It's more of a, a character piece. And what it ends up being overall is this surprisingly clever and surprisingly dark story about a person's capitulation to fascism because resistance costs too much um and it doesn't doesn't uh refrain from really digging into that like it has some really dark moments um Coriolanus is the villain of the original trilogy and this is sort of the story of how he becomes that villain it's a tragic one um but one that is really on his own shoulders because of the choices that he made uh it's not just another Hunger Games story either where I mean with the exception of the the was it just the last movie that didn't actually have a Hunger Games in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so because one and two definitely did. Uh, the third Three, one, I don't know. 
The third one did. The third one d- does have because one, but this Katniss isn't in it. Because from my recollection, this the first one is sort of just a normal Hunger Games, yeah. but they have to end up doing two winners. But yeah. the second, in the second one, it's sort of a a winners the champions season. bracket. It's sort of yeah. the survivor heroes and villains. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's exactly yeah, survivors. It's them just doing something special. For the third one, I believe they have to break into a Hunger Games to do something. And then in the fourth, it's just civil it's just war. Civil straight war. up civil yeah. war. Um, but this is broadly speaking separated into three parts. There's all of this stuff in the city at the beginning. You're finding out more about the um the world, the backstory of the world that exists in the original Hunger Games trilogy. That's quite effective. I don't know how detailed it was in the books, but definitely in the movie, it's it's sort of like, it's sort of just a world that is. You don't really get a huge amount of detail of what led to this. Well, you get that here. You find that bits of flavor about the capital, about its relationships with the districts that uh, informs that original trilogy. Uh, and, you know, there's this, you know, high-class academy that Coriolanus is attending there's all of these class structures that run throughout. It goes into the nitty-gritty of, of what a person's life in the capital and what the capital's view of the district's relationship with the districts is in a way that I found much more detailed than the, mm. the original trilogy did. Well, it's got some time to do that. Yeah. The second part is The Hunger Games, but it's a much earlier, more toned-down version of The Hunger Games. It is but just kids in an arena, essentially. Hmm. But because you've got Coriolanus on the outside, there's this control room element. You're sort of in the control room watching the live broadcast, all of the people strategizing and everything. There's this extra element to it there. But that's interesting, but it it ends up being much less sprawling than the original trilogy in terms of, you know, people going all over the place for the games. Like, they're really Hmm. just in this one arena-style compound. Um, the third part is kind of a spoiler, but it's equally as about world building. I do think it's too long. It could use a trim. It does kind of lead to it maybe losing a bit of its wind as it approaches its finale. But overall, this is a really interesting mm. expansion of the Hunger Games formula. I'm not sure that the Snow-Lucy Gray relationship that they build here works the acting's decent. I'm just not sure that the script fully illustrates mm. that connection in a way that makes me buy it. That might also just be some of my own familiarity with the character of Coriolanus Snow in the original mm. trilogy, kind of making me view him with a side eye. But yeah, you um, don't, you can't quite tr- trust the fascist prick. Yeah, but the supporting cast steal the show. Peter Dinklage is exceptional. He's sort of playing this perennially inebriated he's the guy who created the hunger games yes but it's more complicated than that but yes and he's now running the academy that Coriolanus snow attends and he's like he's self-medicating he's (laughs) out of his mind on morphine most of the time um viola davis plays the person who's actually like the game maker the 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 dungeon master Mm. and she is unhinged she is like like a batman villain in terms of both her visage and in terms of her performance like she really is quite out there and jason schwartzman is also exceptional as this like uncannily uh 
See, I don't even know. He, he, he's so clearly doing Stanley Tucci from the original trilogy, but he can't be playing Stanley Tucci because... It's not the, the same guy. It's not the same guy. He's older than the guy playing Coriolani Snow, and Stanley Tucci is so clearly younger than the guy than Donald Sutherland. Um, mm. I, I, I will assume, not having checked the names, that they're father and son or something, but mm. it's such a, such a spot-on interpretation <laughs> of the Stanley Tucci aura from mm. that original trilogy uh and he gets some of the funniest like rid- most ridiculous lines in the thing um but uh yeah it proves that there's still room in this franchise there's still uh places to go with it i'm actually kind mm. of surprised that they haven't tried to capitalize on this sooner. when was the last hunger games the last movie was 2015 like this um, is this is quite a while yeah of course, that's making. partially due to the fact that there are no more books to adapt. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm a little surprised that they haven't done the Harry Potter route of trying to build out a extended universe around it. Um, but at home, the only movie I have to talk about this week is a movie that I know Harley loves, and uh, I was tempted to select it just to torture him. Um, it's Project X. It's a found footage teen comedy directed by Nima Nurizade. It's about a it's nerdy. It's so kid. stupid. It it's is about so a nerd- I'm I'm so surprised you remembered this. Honestly, it's about a nerdy kid named Thomas. He's played by Thomas Mann. He is turning seventeen, and his friends Costa, played by Oliver Cooper, and JB, played by Jonathan Daniel Brown, throw a party for him. Uh, they want to get lots of people to attend. Uh, really change their place, elevate them in the social rankings. Um, but it gets out of control, and that is the movie. It is a party that is out of control. Um, this is, as you say, deeply stupid. It is the cinematic equivalent of a slurred grunt. Uh, <laughs> it's it's abrasive. It's crude. It's not particularly funny. It's rife with stuff that has aged very poorly. The lead characters are so difficult to like. Thomas maybe squeaks by only by virtue of the fact that he's a moron. The plot is virtually non-existent. It's this loud series of debauchery for 90 minutes. Here's the thing, though. I don't think it matters. I think that the movie is exactly what it wants to be, and more than that, it's exactly what its target audience is looking for. Maybe it just wore me down, but I was kind of entertained by the end of it. Well, um, I've, I've seen no other movie that accurately depicts what a out-of-control party is like. It's much more interesting, the crazier that shit gets. By the time that the news helicopter shows up to report on the events live as they happen, I'm kind of into it. Uh, I'm not proud of that, but it's the (laughs) truth. I will give them genuine props to the editing, the use of licensed music, to the direction of a lot of the different set pieces and sequences. Mm. It's a good use of found footage as well. Um, especially like It's well to, choreographed. Yeah, well, to read about how it was apparently made, they essentially got a bunch of young people, young actors on the uh, studio lot, gave them all mobile phones and have them just party and film it. Mm. And that was just every night for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And a lot of this stuff is just, like, it cuts between different phone camera footages. Like, a lot of this stuff is just stuff that the extras were filming, and there's this through line through it that is scripted. But 
a lot of this stuff was just that crazy, apparently. Uh, look, we can moralise all we want, but this is a movie that succeeds on its own terms. And, you know, I know that there has been a lot of moralising and a lot of hand-wringing about this film, especially at the time that it came out. I know that it did inspire parties. Uh, teenagers, of course, not the greatest at critical thinking, and so they see the stupid thing and they try to do it. Um, but honestly... I'm of the type of person that doesn't blame the art. I blame the stupidity of the person reenacting it. <laughs> um, you know, there's other things going on there that I'm more eager to blame than Project X. At the end of the day, I just can't bring myself to get upset over something this stupid. Like, that's the thing. Like, it is what it is. It succeeds at being that thing. It is, when I, I think. When I saw it, it just exhausted me. <laughs> it. Definitely the early part of it, when Thomas is still trying to keep things in control, it was giving me a great deal of anxiety as someone <laughs> who would find that situation a nightmare. But once he just sort of submits to the craziness of it, you know, it it's an artless thing. Like that's it's mm. it's a it's an artless, witless movie, but it is exactly what it wants to be, exactly what it needed to be to hit its mark with the people that it wanted to watch it. So I suppose in the end, that's a success. Um, anyone interested can find it available for streaming in Australia on Foxtel now. So for us, we've had quite a busy week, actually. Um, for the first time in a long time, we're actually talking about more movies than you are. How about that? Mm-hmm. So the first movie that we watched is one that we've been looking forward to. Yeah, and it's something that we have to clean up before we do our top movies yeah, of this and year. I knew that this was going to be a movie that I liked because the trailer was quite interesting mm. and it was picked up by A24. It is called Talk To Me. It's directed by the Filippo brothers of YouTube fame. Uh, their YouTube channel is Raka Raka. Yes. Mia, played by Sophie Wilde, has had a pretty rough go of it the last few years. Still reeling from the death of her mother and looking for where she fits, she goes to a party with her best friend Jade... Her ex and Jade's current boyfriend, Daniel, and Jade's younger brother, Riley. There's a specific party trick, though, where an embalmed hand is brought out to help communicate with the dead. Excited and willing to risk it to fit in, Mia volunteers for this, initially having a positive experience. Tragedy strikes, however, when the 90-second limit is exceeded and the door to the world of the dead is not closed. Uh, so I'll say my short piece about it first. I really enjoy Talk To Me. It is very Australian, um, and and that's gr really great to see. And it's great to see two Australian lads get such a great reception for this movie, and they honestly deserve it. Um, we watched a bunch of the Rocka Rocka stuff when it was coming out, when we were idiot teenagers, and so that fit in right with us. Um, but what always struck me about the Filippos was their real artistry behind what they do it a lot of what they did let's be frank was crude and stupid mm. but it's the way that they shot it it's the, it's the it's, the, it's the technical ability on display but like stunts shot composition and editing that was always really striking to me it surpassed what other youtubers were doing at the time and seeing them develop into fully fledged filmmakers has been nothing short of outstanding um this is not their first uh, time addressing themes like grief and loss in their art, um, nor horror. Um, they did a YouTube, a quite a long YouTube video where they 
played with that type of thing before, and that was really, really interesting. It, they got They've me. They've done a few. Yeah. They've done a few like that. Um, But Talk To Me is their first, like, feature film. Yeah. Great, great work from the two of them. The writing's really strong. The, the symbolism of seance as recreational drug use is such a fascinating concept. Um, originally, they were planning on using a Ouija board for it, but then they found that ceramic hand. Mm. Their art director and, made it. Yeah, and they were just like, oh, hell yeah. Um, and it's such a cool piece of symbolism because touch, physical connectedness, and particularly hands are a really big symbol here. Our entire cast is outstanding. Uh, predominantly, our lead here, uh, Mia, played by Sophie Wilde, She's incredible. Uh, from the first scene on, particularly the seance scene, yeah, uh, where she lights the the dead in, is just wonderful. The rest of the cast have spoken in interviews after the fact about following her lead on that. Yeah, because she just nailed it the first time they tried. Um, it's shot really, really strong, and it's got this kind of Clive Barker energy to it. Yeah. Um. I don't see that a lot about a lot of stuff that isn't directly by Barker or or his friends, but there are elements here with how the dead operate that gave me real books of blood energy. Not just the books of blood, Hulu, Amazon, like the Hulu Disney Plus thing um, from earlier in the year that we watched earlier the, last year. Last year, um, but I'm talking about, like the book. Yeah. Um. And concepts there, I think it's really, really well done. They make a really great use out of Australia. They wanted to make sure that this was shot here. They want to make sure all the rest of their works are shot here with local casts and, and local crews. Yeah, local crews. It's it's so so good to see an Australian movie made by two people we've been able to watch develop as filmmakers. Uh, it's just. It's great stuff. And to see A24 snatch it up for distribution, this could be the start of a really beautiful friendship. The uh, Filippos are so interesting because this is an example of Screen Australia giving these two guys so much rope, and instead of hanging themselves with it, they use it to the best of their abilities. Mm. They've grown as filmmakers so much, and that can be shown here. This movie was co-written by Danny Filippo and Bill Hinsman, based on a concept by Daley Pearson. And the concept isn't the most interesting thing about it, it's the delivery of it. There's a lot of meditations here on grief and identity and trying to fit in. And a lot of this has come from real-life experiences that the Filippos have had. Mm. Go search up some of the interviews with them and videos about it to hear more about that. But the quality of this film is just so striking. From mm. the first trailer, I figured, oh, this is very A24. And this wasn't intended to be A24, but it had that feeling from the get-go. Very, very strong performances from the cast. Sophie oh, the, Wilde. The, the kid who plays Riley. Yes. Holy shit. Yes. Sophie Wilde is incredible here, particularly in the scenes where she's doing the ritual, the talk-to-me ritual. Joe Bird as Riley, Jade's younger brother, absolutely throws himself into the role yeah. as 
this impressionable teenager who... And he has some of the most brutal shit to do. It's honestly incredible. Practical effects really strong. And the rest of the cast aren't slouches either. You've got some actors here who have been in quite a lot of things. Chris Alosio as Joss, Zoe Tarakes as Haley. Zoe Tarakes being someone that we recognize as the character Reb from Wentworth. Wentworth. And Miranda Otto, who everyone knows. And all of the actors do such an excellent job. And they're all switched on to what this movie's about. Mm. Which is sort of a three-pronged approach of drug culture, grief and loss, and just human connection. Yeah, and and how one can be peer pressured. Yeah, it's such a well-done movie. It's got references to so many other horror movies. There's some definite exorcist here. There's some society here. There's a lot of really interesting stuff, but it never forgets to be Australian Gothic. Yeah. It's very boys in the trees well, feeling. If, if I was writing my essay on Australian Gothic this year, that's the one I'd be using. I, I was very impressed at how mature this film was, mm. and it ends at, in a really, really interesting way, a in a really nasty way. Yeah, a particularly Clive Barkery note. I always always appreciate this movie blew me away because mm. going in i thought that the we thought it was a lot of talk i thought there was going to be a lot more of the Filippo's crassness yeah in this but they've really matured into really interesting filmmakers and i'm excited to see if talk this is too. a yes i'm excited to see if this is a sort of situation where they make one good movie and then sort of the plume goes off the rose, or if they're able to really nail it mm. repeatedly. I believe in them. I believe in them, and I like to see Australian films get this much cred mm. in the industry. And A24, again, it's another A24 movie that hasn't disappointed me. I mm. think uh, alongside Blumhouse, they're very interesting in terms of the people they get and the dis decisions that they make. Mm. Blumhouse is quite similar to A24 in the sense that they take wild swings, but in a more palatable, pop culture well, friendly way. Blumhouse is more way. commercial. It's a glossier, glossier yeah, scene more commercial. to Blumhouse. Yeah, but they're quite similar. Yeah. Well, in business practice, at least. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, and I'm excited to see the directions they go in, and we know that they've already filmed a found footage prequel. Yeah, and they're, they're in the process, and they're making they're in the process of pre-production for the sequel. Talk yes. to me, which is a title and convention that you despise. Um, but I do have to say, this movie did not have a Ronald McDonald punching a kid in the head. Zero stars. <laughs> That's a reference to their videos. But anyway, I loved this. It will probably be on my list. I was thoroughly impressed by this film. Mm. Uh, so you can find that on Netflix in Australia. So next. Uh, we watched another 2023 movie. This one was not sort of on our radar. I'd seen the trailers. wasn't terribly interesting. Harley had to be dragged kicking and screaming into watching this movie. And the only reason why we were able to get him to sit down and watch this movie was because we had an afternoon off. I was going to get around to it, but it wasn't... You know, some movies I have at a higher priority than others. You do have a terrible track record of... Ignoring movies that you end up really loving. 
Oh, we're not talking about Talk to Me. We're talking now about Candy Cane Lane. Okay. This is probably not going to fit into that. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, Candy Cane Lane is directed by Reginald Hudlin. Uh, it stars Eddie Murphy as Chris Carver. Now, Chris is, is Chris is having a pretty shit Christmas so far. He's recently been fired when his company decided to downsize his department, so he's now out of a job. But not all hope is lost. Chris is determined to win the neighborhood's annual Christmas decorating contest, which this year has up to a $100,000 reward, which will nicely tide the family over till the new year, where you can find more sustainable earnings. Frustrated that his handcuffed decorations have failed to make an impact at past contests, he gets desperate. Finding a strange pop-up Christmas shop, Chris buys several decorations, specifically a large tree designed after the 12 Days of Christmas rhyme. To work at the store, Pepper, played by Jillian Bell, convinces Chris to not read the fine print on the receipt, and Chris goes home to set goes home to set up. But not but all is not as it seems. Chris has unwittingly made a pact with Pepper, who is herself a disgruntled Christmas elf, uncompromising in her belief that Santa has grown soft. She has cursed Chris, so that he and his family will be terrorized by the figures listed in the Twelve Days of Christmas, while he has to complete a task to break the curse. Find the gold rings. Because that's part of the rhyme. If he fails by 8pm on Christmas Eve, he will become a porcelain Christmas ornament forever. How's that for a happy holidays? So, John Sayo short piece on Candy Cane Lane. This was decent, but it doesn't really go anywhere that you don't expect. This is very much a movie about finding family and finding the things that really matter at Christmas. And, you know, all of the things that that entails. What this movie does right is the dynamic amongst the family members. Mm. There's a really fun dynamic in the family where they all just riff on each other Mm. and there's a lot of chemistry here. And, you know, that kind of goes without saying because it's Eddie Murphy. The man can improvise with the best of them. Where I think this movie fails slightly is some of its technical abilities. There's some fairly horrendous ADR. Oh, yeah. Particularly near the end of the movie that sort of takes you out of the entire thing. I'm not even kidding. It's the worst ADR I've seen in years. You are looking directly at this person and their mouth does not fit the words that are saying. Not even close. Yeah, not even close. And... I don't know, there's just some shots here that don't flow concurrently with each other. It feels like there are some moments missing in between shots. But beside, other than that, I had quite a bit of fun with this. The story is interesting. There's a bit of a horror element with this disgruntled elf. And she's actually quite terrifying in moments where, you know, she does. She acts properly, like a deranged person. She acts like a deranged person, which I appreciate. But it could have gone a little bit further into horror, in my eyes. Um, for me, the CGI I, is pretty good too. For me, I just think it's a pretty stock standard Christmas movie. I will push back on your assertion that it has the whole find your presence with family sort of standard Christmas fare. I think the family unit's pretty strong the whole way through. I don't think anybody was like dismissive of it of the other members of the family. Not really. Mm. Uh, they were just very busy around the holidays, which we can all attest to. Um, and they do pay lip service to, to that idea as well. Um, I love the structure of this thing. Like, the, the whole 
idea of the 12 days of Christmas coming to life and having to solve the problems inherent in that rhyme. Very bird-centric. Yeah, there's very a lot of bird-centric bird rhyme. It's partridges, geese. There's um I do like dogs. the 10 lords are leaping. Yeah. That that's was a, a very sequence. funny sequence. Um cuz they're all like these hot sort of like hallmark princes, but they're all like parkour people. That was pretty amusing. But one of the funny one of the most interesting elements to me was these sort of figurine people that Peppa has hostage that she's swindled in the past um, and cursed to become these porcelain figure people. Uh, they're sort of... They're not stop motion, but they're... It's CG meant to look that way. Yeah, so, it's like, there's, like, CG remo- with missing frames. There's, like, missing frames, sort of that first Spider-Verse technique, yeah. but in live action, which gives them this odd energy... And I think that was in, that was pretty effective. Um, movie gets a little bit long in the tooth in the final act, but there is a very very good uh, twist uh, on the curse and the task that needs to be performed that I didn't expect, but makes absolute sense when you think about the Twelve Days of Christmas and how that song itself is structured. Um, oh, it's a good twist. It's a damn good twist. Uh, all in all, it it's it's fine. It, it's a fun movie to watch. It's not going to challenge you any, and it it doesn't surpass my favorite Christmas movie, Jingle All the Way. But let's be frank, nothing ever will. Uh, you can find Candy Cane Lane on Amazon Prime. Eddie Murphy does not punch a single reindeer in the entire film. Not a single reindeer gets punched. That's all you need to know. We also watched another movie. This one is older. It is not a 2023 movie. And it shows that age. And it it shows. <laughs> we watched Trading Places. Have you seen Trading Places, Lawson? No, I haven't. Right. This stars Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Lewis Winthorpe is a businessman who works for the commodities brokerage firm of Duke and Duke. Lu- owned by Lewis, brothers uh, Mortimer and Randolph Duke. Yeah. Lewis is played by Dan Aykroyd. Mortimer and Randolph bicker over the most trivial of matters, and what they are bickering about is whether it's a person's environment or hereditary or genealogy that determines how well they do in life. Nature versus nurture. When Winthorpe bumps into Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy, a street hustler, and assumes that he's trying to rob him, he has Billy arrested. Upon seeing how different the two men are, the Duke's decide to make a wager, an experiment, to see what would happen if Winthorpe became Valentine and Valentine became Winthorpe. Winthorpe loses his job, his home, and is shunned by everyone he knows. And Valentine is given Winthorpe's job, house, butler, and seems to be making a good job of it. And it sort of goes on from there. It's your sort of stock standard 80s. Guilt is bad, rich people suck. Greed is bad. Yeah. Greed is bad, rich people suck. Nah, um, so I've seen Trading Places several times before. It is not a surprising movie to me. Uh, it's it's very 1983. Uh, I think that the two strong... I think the strongest performance here is Eddie Murphy. Um, because while he's... While Valentine is in his own life, he is still someone who looks down on other people living lives like him. He has this sense of inherent superiority that he holds over others. So he kind of takes to the 
rich bitch life like a fish to water. And he's damn good at the brokerage stuff. Because um, he quite correctly identifies it as the same kind of hustle he's been doing his entire life. Uh, it's just on a much bigger scale and you don't have to look people in the face while you're doing it. I think that Dan Aykroyd is pretty fun here. Uh, he's putting on this really wimpy, foppish kind of voice. And that's very funny, very, very funny when he's trying so desperately, drunkly, to get his life back. Um, uh, the Dukes are played by Ralph Bellamy and Donna Mesh, and they have a fun chemistry. Mm. Like, the bickering that they do with one another is very, very, very interesting. And the discussions of nature versus nurture are sort of rarely dismissed by the movie. Um, it's people. You can't make broad, generalized statements based on two guys who have their own things going on, because the Dukes constantly talk down to Valentine, while he's perfectly aware of what they're saying. And that's because the Dukes are, as the movie will make explicit, racist assholes. Um, we also have... Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis is here, um, as a sex worker that Winthorpe uh, becomes quite close to. Ultimately, it's a movie that shows its age. Uh, in one... There's a particular in, seven in, in, minute in... stretch of this film that dances over, dances over the line, line of respectability with a smile on its face. And it's kind of exhilarating to watch it do it so bold-faced. Yeah. And just willing to throw itself under the bus like that. And that's it's the thing. The rest of it jaw dropping. And the rest of it is perfectly respectable. It's just a seven this minute There's a seven sequence. minutes where it sort of just decides, you know what? We've had we've got enough goodwill from the audience. Well, it's at not this just point. that it's a it's a seven minute sequence that remembers, hey, this is the year nineteen eighty three. We, we can, can get away with want. shit. Yeah, this is the eighties, we can do what we want kind of thing. We and can put Dan Aykroyd in blackface. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, and and imply that a get that a person gets molested by a gorilla. Yeah. So, oh, nineteen eighty-three for you. Yeah, but aside from that pretty startling seven minutes, I have to say I had a good time with this. It's your stock standard riches to rags and also simultaneously rags to riches story. Then back and go- then. Sort of finding an equilibrium and yeah. then shooting both protagonists up to riches again. This the Dukes are the most fascinating aspect yeah. of this movie, but Winthorpe and Valentine are no slouches either. It's always fun to see a foppish mm. man child get brought truly so low. Mm. And the embarrassment that Winthorpe goes through, as a watcher, you get a lot of catharsis seeing this man get everything taken away from him. But Um, this movie has aged, and that can't really be argued against. The performances, I think, are pretty solid all around. There's some very funny sequences. But again, this movie has aged, and it has aged in parts like milk. It's not my favourite John Landis movie, uh, it's not nearly my favorite Eddie Murphy movie. I think something like Coming to America is far superior. But it's good fun and Christmas movie. Anywho, uh, you went to the theater. 
I did. Um, so this is another one of the ones that I have uh, saved from last week. I've got actually got two theatre performances to talk about this week. One of them I saw last week, one of them I saw this week. Uh, for my pith take, uh, I have first off a dramedy play called The Amateurs. It's written by Jordan Harrison. It's set in 14th century Europe and it follows a group of incompetent theatre performers as they make their way across the countryside trying to outrun the plague. Um, and they hope that their performance of a, uh, a play based on the Bible story of Noah's Ark will be enough to give them shelter in a duke's fortress once they get there. Uh, so this play was a new adventure for me. I went to a, a small black box theatre in Brisbane called the Ad Astra Theatre. It's a very independent, sort of artsy kind of get-up. Mm, I've um, never been. And uh, this was a, a... I found a fitting play for an introduction to that space. It's it's very unusual. You don't quite figure out what it's doing until after the intermission, even. Um, the first half is a fun but flimsy medieval road comedy. Um, the meat comes from this truly unexpected pivot it makes after the halfway mark. Uh, it's following, you know, these theatre performers. There's a lot of inside baseball kind of uh, jokes and references and things. Um, but it, more than that, it considers the nature of stories themselves. The pandemic aspect is used cannily in more ways than you expect. Um, obviously, you know, this play was written before COVID, um, so it's taken on an, an additional component to the one that w that was originally intended, and I found that this production threaded that needle quite well. Ultimately, though, it's about trying to outrun existential dread, you know, that all of us feel in some way or another, I think. The bad thing that could end it all could be the thing that destroys the world or destroys our lives or whatever. What? So why do we keep going? Why do we keep trying to get to shelter um, when no matter what we do, the flood's going to keep coming? And uh, it gets quite heavy with that towards the end. Um, but along the way, it manages to be quite funny as well. It's largely well-written, although I will say that some parts of the script seem to have more care taken with them than others. It's a very, it was a very impressive production as well. It was, it was an extremely under-attended showing. I actually felt bad for the performers because there were very, very few of us in the audience, like almost as many people on stage as there were in the audience. Um, oh, and where like, was this? The Ad Astra uh, Theatre. Like, it's a bit... Been. It's a very, very small, um, small theatre, but still, it was uh, a bit awkward. Would you, would you compare it to Metro Arts? Significantly smaller than Metro Arts. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've, I've heard of the Ad Astra, but we've never been. Yeah. I'd like to go one day. Mm. It, uh, it was incredibly professional, though. Um, like, excellently performed, uh, like... It's an independent theatre, but it's very professional theatre. They've been nominated for a bunch of Queensland Theatre Awards and hmm. stuff. Like, it was a whole lot more professional than some of the other stuff I've seen independent theatre-wise, like Savoyards or Metro Arts. Like, they are a more professional get-up. Um, and, you know, there's a, a great atmosphere, low attendance notwithstanding. You're in a very small space with these actors, and you you really get a lot of that sort of energy feeding off of each other the audience feeding off the performers and vice versa is a uh, 
a fun vibe. And the cast acquit themselves very well. There was a, a really scene-stealing performance by a guy named Greg Skur, but you also got uh, some really great supporting turns by Madeline Armit and Leah Davies. Um, it's it's a good company, I, I found, looking at their repertoire, looking at their back, back archive, their list of stuff they've done over the years. It's a good company for more niche shows that will never make a larger stage in Brisbane because we just don't support the audience for it like um like a New York or somewhere does uh and um I've already booked three no four four plays of theirs next year to go and see because they have a lot of like off the beaten track kind of things that I would like to go and check out uh, but lastly for this week and lastly for this year in terms of my theatre excursions, I saw A Christmas Carol. It is a supernatural drama play written by Nell Lee. It's based on the novella of the same name by Charles Dickens. You will know this story. It's set in 1800s London. Ebenezer Scrooge, played in this production by Eugene Gilfeder, uh, is essentially a huge arsehole who hates <laughs> Christmas. Um, he's especially cruel to his employee, Bob Cratchit, played here by Lucas Dibbert. But uh, he's in for a shock because on Christmas Eve, he is visited by the ghost of his former business partner, Marley, played by Brian Probitz, who informs him that he needs to change his ways or he's screwed. And um, Or he's to... Scrooged? Yeah, haha, well done. Yes, John. Well done, John. Um, but uh, he is told that three spirits will visit him that night, and these three spirits come along and show him Christmas's past, present, and future to convince him that he needs to change his ways. This, have you ever seen, so, okay, so this is the Shake and Stir theatre production Mm. of this. Have you ever seen it? I've not. No, I haven't seen this. It is extraordinary. It is just knock your socks off, holy crap, this is like cutting edge staging of theatre. Like, it does so, so much Oh, Shake and Stir are incredible. Yeah, we've yes. been to a few of them. We've spoken about them before for Frankenstein. Yes, yes they did Frankenstein. They also, I, I'd have to go and check. I think they might have done that Sherlock Holmes one I saw at the beginning of the year. I'd they have also to go and did Animal that. Farm in 1984. Yeah, we saw yeah. their 1984. Fantastic. Mm. Um, but this is just an excellent adaptation. It's a, it's a classic story, but it's told here with dramatic verve and with a focus on emotion. It retains very large portions of the book's prose, uh, and I I found that that worked quite well. But more than that, it makes a lot of really smart adaptational choices. Probitz plays each ghost, for instance. He doesn't just play Marley. He plays all of them. That's cool. um, In different costumes and different wigs and things. I was actually Uh, thinking about doing that in an adaptation a couple days ago, like mm. having all of the ghosts be the one person. Well... It, it also make, can make it seem, if not done correctly, like Marley's just pulling a fast one. <laughs> no, it's it's done extremely well. And the script minds the darkness and the melancholy that's inherent in the text. It's a it's ghost v- story. It's a very smart, and more, but more than that, it's a sad story. Until the very end, it's quite sad. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the adaptation here is a smart one. It emphasizes that well. But the thing that really is astonishing is the staging. There is a video background in much the same way Frankenstein had a video background. But there's also holograms. They use holograms to generate, like, 
so that the actor sent like the actor will be on stage playing the ghost but then he'll like pull a trick and he'll go behind a piece of stage dressing and then a hologram will pop up on the other side of the stage so it looks like he's teleported and like it's just look full disclosure this is the first time i've ever actually seen a hologram in person it was really cool <laughs> um <laughs> it's and and it's a it's very smartly and cannily constructed um and it's just a very striking staging. I, I went and saw it with my mother, and we both agreed uh, as we left the theatre that we should bring my 82-year-old grandmother to see it next year because it would blow her mind. Like, I mm. guarantee you, she does not even know that this technology exists. <laughs> so, John, um, yeah, I would love to go see it. Like, we should definitely see this next year yeah. if we get the chance. Yeah, because um, well, I've been directed by Lucas Stibbard before, yeah. and I'm a mate... If it is so, I would. L- I've heard him talk about it constantly yeah. over the past few years. So I would love to actually sit down and watch it. Yeah, yeah. and it's- Christmas Carol's my favorite uh, yeah. Christmas-based thing. I mean, because it's good ghosts, man. It's well, spooky. It's well, not sad, just that. It's, it's also a really great look at what the Christmas season is supposed to be about. It's supposed. But supposed to be about humanity, benevolence. Doing oh yeah, what it's you can. woke as fuck. Like that's the thing. Yeah. Um, like if this had not come out closer to two hundred years ago than one hundred and fifty, um, then you know if this came out today, it'd be being raped over all of the coals by these, you know, socially the conservative. Suspects. The usual suspects, exactly. Like this classic piece of text of English literature would have been totally written off by the. Ben Shapiro's of the world as being like this awful you can't liberal, say that about rich people. liberal propaganda. Like it's it's just it's just nonsense, and it really exposes yeah, how the, how pickle. weak and pointless yeah. and they are the screws. Hostile to art as a concept, those mm. arguments are. And um, like, it's one of the greatest ghost stories ever told, too. Like, and the and the thing that a lot of people don't recognize in the original text. It's so funny. Like, yeah, the original really text funny. is, it's so witty. Like, there's an entire it's not, part. It's not dry at there's all. There's an entire part at the beginning of the book, which is incredible. He, Dickens uses the phrase, dead as a doornail, and then kind of self-consciously is like, I don't know, is a doornail the deadest kind of nail? Would what that would be a coffin, coffin nail? nail. Uh, they keep well, that in put- there. Yeah, um, you'll, you'll, you'll permit me to use yeah. the phrase, dead as a doornail. Yeah, they use the background, <laughs> um, not extras, but like sort of the background actors who play multiple roles. They use them as basically a, a Shakespearean chorus mm. to cool. bring in some of Dickens' actual narration, not just the dialogue. The thing with Dickens is he was such a, he was such a fun author, not just on his concepts, but on his delivery. His mm. writing has this energy going through it. This production is brilliantly acted too. Um, Gilfeder and Probert's especially are scene stealers. I will say that Gilfeder can go too comically broad sometimes for my liking, but um, he really nails the more emotional and difficult parts of the, the journey that Scrooge has. Um, How's the spirit of Christmas yet to be? Um, it's a puppet. It's a very large cool. on-stage puppet. So, well, I That's shouldn't awesome. say puppet, more like a, a human-operated animatronic, closer than anything else. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. it's. I strongly recommend it. It's very, very good. Um, 
it does come back seasonally. They seem to like it. It was a very big crowd. Um, mm. that it's an earner. I saw it with. Like, yes, it's an earner, and I think it. Judging from the stuff we were overhearing in the lobby, I think it has become kind of like a tradition for a lot of the mm. people that were there. Like, they go and see it every year. I think there's like a core group of people that come back. Um, but yes, it's quite excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely have to. Yeah, go to that. I've one been next wanting year. to go see it for years, but it's just been. You know, theatre is expensive, and you have to really make time for yeah. it. And Christmas being and the season that Honestly, going to theatre with you this year, Lawson, has been a gift in and of itself. Well, my company is uh, the greatest <laughs> gift that can be given. <laughs> take, t- take what you want from what I said. <laughs> That's my gift to you. So, uh, now we're going to play for you the trailer to 21 Jump Street. Not so slim shady. What's up? Holy shit. I haven't seen you since high school. Hey, titty twister. Titty twister. Stop. Oh, fuck. You good at this, huh? Yeah. Test results, gentlemen. Such bullshit. You're really good at this. Yeah. Hey, you want to be friends? Fuck yeah, I do. You're ready for a lifetime of being badass motherfuckers. Oh, I am. I thought this job would have more car chases and explosions and shit. No fucking way. We could take them down. We'd be off park duty for sure. You guys even real cops look like kids on Halloween. Hey, you want me to beat your dick off? You want to beat my dick off? I think what he was trying to say was he's going to punch you so many times around the genital area that your dick's just going to fall off. Hail the conquering heroes. We got our first bust. Yes! Yes! You forgot to read him his Miranda rights. Do you even know the Miranda rights? <laughs> Look, it obviously starts with, do you have the right to remain an attorney? Did you say you have the right to be an attorney? You do have the right to be an attorney if you want to. We're reviving a canceled undercover police program from the 80s. You idiots are officially transferred. Where do we report? Down on Jump Street, 21 Jump Street. You are here because you some Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus looking motherfuckers. You will be going in as undercover high school students. Kids are weird these days. What the fuck are those things? You have exceptional muscle tone there, young man. Don't you go through puberty? Like it's seven or something? There's a new synthetic drug at Sagan High. The mission is find a supplier. I think the dealers are the popular kids. We should start a party. That would be the quickest way to get in with them. Rule number one. Let's go. Don't give nobody no drugs, no alcohol. Are you two throwing a party? There's rumors in the Twitter sphere. I promise you we'll be super professional. All I do is party. Take it here so I know you're cool. Have fun. Are you guys on drugs? I don't like that. Put your tongue back in your mouth. A lot of things that made me wonder about you. Your taste in music. The fact that you look like a fucking 40-year-old man. Let me check out your chest. Check out your test. After that shit you pulled yesterday, there's no way you could be cops, right? We go to prom with me? When did I get stabbed? That's awesome! Yeah! Why do you always jump across the car like that? Because it looks cool. You try. 
You okay? I think I shit my pants. That was the trailer for 21 Jump Street. It is a buddy cop comedy directed by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, and it is based on the Patrick Hasber and Stephen J. Cannell-created Fox television series of the same name, which ran for five seasons from 1987 to 1991. The film follows two wildly immature police officers, Morton Schmidt, played by Jonah Hill, and Greg Jenko, played by Channing Tatum. The pair went to high school together, where Schmidt was relentlessly bullied, particularly by the dim-witted, jockish Jenko, but they found a peculiar friendship going through police academy together and now serve as partners, though they remain perennially unable to make an arrest. Their frustrated superiors eventually reassigned them to the Jump Street program, so named for the abandoned church at 21 Jump Street that they operate out of. Headed up by the mercurial Captain Dixon, played by Ice Cube, this extremely ill-advised program sends the youngest cops on the force undercover as students at local high schools to shut down crime rings aimed at the nation's youth, usually drug-related. Schmidt's dreading it, but Jenko thinks he'll quickly be top of the social pecking order once more. However, they're shocked to discover that high school social dynamics have changed a lot in the seven years since they graduated. Caring is cool now, and empty-headed bullies have a hard time navigating the socially progressive sentiments of the day. Against all odds, Schmidt finds himself living the high school experience he never got to have, striking up an extremely uncomfortable flirtation <laughs> with Molly Tracy, played Oof. by Brie, played by Brie Larson, an eighteen-year-old. Yes, they're very, very careful to say that, aren't they? Uncomfortably so. A student at his drama class. While Jenko is ostracized, finding an unlikely kinship with the socially awkward boys in his science class. They're there to do a job, though, and that job is to find the source of a deadly new drug that is ripping its way through the student body. The cops quickly identify the pretentious but affable Eric Molson, played by Dave Franco, as a dealer, and clumsily attempt to ingratiate themselves with him in order to identify his supplier. Only Schmidt is successful. And as time goes by, he becomes more and more enamoured with living the life of a popular kid. As he and Jenko grow increasingly estranged, their ability to work together is compromised. And with prom rapidly approaching, their chance to find the supplier before the drugs spread to other schools in the city is slipping away. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on 21 Jump Street. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is very funny. I enjoyed a lot of what this movie was doing. The jokes it makes about action films. The jokes it makes about its main characters as well. How absolutely stupid these two guys are. And the reasons why they get shoved down to Jump Street, including a fantastic Nick Offerman, is really fun. Ice Cube is, again, as you may have mentioned last week Lawson he's really fun here as well although it does sidle up to some quite uncomfortable shit <laughs> um all right you ready Harley yep three two one go aren't they glad they made the sequel in college I think it's very very funny uh I think Hill and Tatum are really really great together they have this amazing chemistry the whole time through um, I think the jokes are really very funny, but again, it sidles up to that uncomfortable sort of space. Not just 
uh, with the cop getting interested in a 18-year-old, but a teacher getting interested in... To be fair, he's not a child. She doesn't know that. She though. doesn't know that. <laughs> uh... I think this is hilarious. I think it's really good. It is perhaps my favourite Jonah Hill performance, although he's someone I have a fairly low tolerance of. But I agree, he's he's got fantastic chemistry with Channing Tatum, and I think the sort of like the brio with which this movie approaches its its jokes and its humour it sells it so well. And it's such a great time. It's got that improvisational vibe that really is is a lot of fun. But yeah, I third the. Uh, the side eye at some of the problematic elements um that seems as good a place to start as any because that is the big cloud hanging over this movie i really i actually didn't remember all of mm. that stuff in it because i saw this movie in cinemas and i would have been exactly the brie larson character's age at mm. that time and being a, a schmidt jesus christ yeah. boy and being a, a, a dumb teenager with no self-awareness i didn't really think that deeply about it and didn't think about the, uh, the implications of that. But yes, watching it now as as a person who is almost half a decade older than even its two leads. Four. <laughs> yeah, like rough, rough stuff. Schmidt, my lad. No. It's like, you are more than that, mate. You're, You're a, a fucking cop. cop. Yeah. Guy, you know the law. And, and but it, we, if it, it was okay. Janko... I, it's not okay, but fuck, I get He's it. He's an idiot. He's an idiot. The, the man doesn't even know how to cite the Miranda rights to a perp. But Schmidt, man, I get, I get that you're trying to recapture that high school experience that you But not all things missed. get recaptured. But honestly, at some point, just take the L. Just, <laughs> just let it go. It, it didn't happen, and that's fine. You know what I preferred? Janko's friendship with the nerds. Yeah, it is quite charming. That got weirdly wholesome. Like the, the way that he, yeah. the the nerds are just like, "Hey, we're gonna do some chemistry and blow shit up." Then Janko's like, "I fucking love science. This is awesome." The main nerd is actually the the guy holding the main camera in Project X, mm. who is he's apparently at the time a fairly big YouTuber. Mm. Um, I, I need to. He has some outrageous name that i need to find because it was i looked i did a double Some take YouTuber when i saw shit. it uh it's what he's credited by to dax flame oh god <laughs> that makes me Jesus. cringe out of my soul that makes me want to vomit <laughs> like the the chemistry between between hill and tatum is off the charts yeah they work so incredibly well together and it's not a pairing that you'd really think off the top of your head would actually gel that well, because they occupy such different spots in yeah. pop culture. Jonah Hill has made his money playing belligerently unpleasant nerds, and Channing Tatum <laughs> looks like Channing Tatum. So, like, <laughs> Channing Tatum is Channing Tatum. Yeah. The fact that the man got- hasn't played a superhero yet is criminal. Well, they tried to get Gambit off the ground. It's... Okay, so Gambit's <laughs> not happening. Someone just cast him as a superhero. How old is he now? Like, I'd imagine he'd be... Yeah, 43. Jesus, I would have guessed just late 30s. Wow, 43. So yeah, he was already in his 30s when they made this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's awesome. But like, he does... <laughs> When he's like freshly shaved, he 
he's very fresh-faced here. I do love how they call attention to it, the fact that he's Channing Tatum. <laughs> how it's like, I couldn't have been more clearly talking to him, not you, Schmidt. <laughs> but, like, random Dakota Johnson there as one of the other yeah. recruits. I always like seeing her show up and stuff. This um, is before her big break. But, well, if you want to call Fifty Shades of Grey a big break. But uh, when the, the thing that this movie has around its neck is it's, its greatest weakness is also its greatest strength, which is how truly deranged the premise of the plot is. <laughs> like, the fact that this was a television a successful television series that ran for five seasons starred johnny depp as the main character and took it deadly seriously like there was not an ounce yeah. of parody or irony in that tv show it was a straight up 80s teen drama yeah. um and this movie doesn't take shit seriously no no it is and and that's the <laughs> correct choice to take because the premise it's ridiculous it's it's ridiculous and it's hugely problematic. And in fact, it has to be illegal, right? You'd think so, wouldn't you? Like it's <laughs> like it's what the "Hello, fellow kids" joke is based on. Like that's that's the whole inspiration for the Steve Buscemi gag in that Thirty Rock episode. Like mm. that's that is where that cultural conceit <laughs> comes from. Is Twenty One Jump Street? But I think that the one thing that this movie doesn't do, the one sacred cow that it refuses to kill is that it doesn't go all the way up to acknowledging how how truly insane that premise is like i was thinking about this and i think that if you get to the end if you have this whole movie be the same as it was the whole way through but you get to the end when schmidt goes to talk to brie larson when she's sitting at the ambulance and it goes through that whole thing saying how he really cares about her you know da 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 um, I w- sorry for lying to you, but, you know, instead of having her brighten up and kiss him, just have her go, what the fuck is wrong with you? You are a 25-year-old police officer. Yeah. <laughs> like, if, you, if they had taken that one last moment to subvert that element, to do that final thing mm. and, and really, like, drill into, again, how, like, just... Utterly deranged a concept it is. Yeah, yeah, and, like socially objectionable <laughs> the very idea of it is then um then i feel like actually they would have earned the whole thing it would have undone a lot of the uncomfortableness mm. of it because but i i, I also kind of like the idea because they're on some vigilante shit in the last act right yeah they're not on the case i wanted <laughs> them punished um because mm. that would have been the icing on the cake ice cubes like well done you found the supplier but what the hell were you doing? I actually <laughs> do like the idea that it, it calls back to the beginning of them not being able to do the most basic aspect of police work. You can't arrest someone if you're not a damn cop. <laughs> no, I think there was well, still they are cops. cops. Well, they're not they on, the, on the case out of jumpsuit. But like, it's, yeah, that's not a deciding factor on whether a police officer can arrest someone. I suppose they could blame someone, the though, several though. crimes they witness on their way. Yeah, I mean, like. I don't think a cop like sees see someone running from the the side of a murder and it's just like, well, what can I do? It's not I'm not on the case. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, like part of me wants to blame Jonah Hill, and I am predisposed to blaming Jonah Hill. I'll grant you. I have <laughs> what I will admit is an irrational dislike of the man. Not not personally, although I will say that some of the news stuff about him recently has made me really question him personally. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
But just the general vibe that he gives off in a lot of his characters is just something I really don't gel with mm. at all. But he is the he he did the story treatment for this. Like he is deeply involved in the narrative mm. and the build up on it. And they actually joke about it in the behind the scenes features of Twenty Two Jump Street that the common thread is that he keeps giving himself these incredibly beautiful romantic interests that he gets to kiss and you know have these flirtatious subplots with Mm. and you know i don't know i don't want to lay that at i wouldn't don't want to assume that jonah hill is just letting his own uh ego get in the way of what would potentially be a a much better resolution to story but i kind of suspect that might be the case yeah (laughs) well you always got to be at least a little bit you got to give a little bit of a side eye side eye to the writers who are also performing in the thing and give themselves stuff like that to do like when John Favreau in Iron Man 2 gave himself the scene where uh Scarlett Johansson like traps his face between her thighs <laughs> kind of like kinda, that kind of <laughs> yeah 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 but Favreau does have more credit from me than Jonah um, Hill does this this is a crude movie, is the thing, and I think yeah. I think it pulls off a, a a magic trick that not many movies can pull off, where it is both crude and clever, which yeah. is mm. a blend that a lot of comedies try for but few can achieve. Um, but this actually manages it. There are just like the sheer rate per minute of dick jokes in this yeah. movie is it's constant. It, it's constant, but they're really smart pictures it's it's to the point where it's so common it's so often and they are all of such a quality that you are impressed that they've done it yeah and it's even in some of the little lines too um i quite liked and i told this to lawson uh, before we started how like ice cubes like who who put this board up this is autistic then shining tame's like Yes, it is autistic. <laughs> um, yeah, it's got a it's got a lot of interesting little turns of phrase and little oneers and you know recurring jokes and stuff that go throughout. It's we've talked before about how improv based comedies mm. can can be a curse if you're not doing it right because it can mess with the timing and if you're not willing to kill your darlings and actually drill it down to the highest quality stuff, then it can actually start to damage the tone yeah. and the pacing Judd of the Apatow. movie. Judd Apatow. Some Judd Apatow. Some Jud- Judd Apatow, yeah. Um, but for here, it really works. and I think It's like, laser-focused. It's yeah. knife-tight. And what it does so well is the absurd thing. When in mm. doubt, it will always do the absurd thing. I love how they do the truck that should explode doesn't explode and then the first thing that does explode is a truck full of chickens, chickens. <laughs> excellent brilliant that that is Perfectly a joke chased. delivered perfectly but even like at the beginning of the movie where they um have that guy on the ground and they've caught him and then they just heroic heroic music is playing while they're congratulating each other and shouting shouting at the guy to suck their dick and then Jonah Hill fires his gun in the air in celebration like it's it's so beyond any anything that could remotely be taken seriously in real yeah, life and you're like telling it's so me nobody wacky. was recording that on their phones it's just it's so wacky and that's yeah. what the movie <laughs> does best when it when it leaves 
the atmosphere and goes into that wacky territory. That's some of the best stuff for me. Like, like, I love the drug trip yeah. sequence. Yeah. Like, yeah. When, when they take this drug, it doesn't hit them first because the entire reason why they've taken it at the school then is the... because Ed wants to s- watch them do it. Because he make wants sure to they know that they're cops. not knocks. Yeah. yeah, Dave Frank. And th- that, okay, so the knock sequence, because um, Dave Franco is the one who introduces the concept of the knock. Then they start talking about knocks. Then he's like, hey, 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 only a knock would use the word knock. They're like, well, you brought up well, the you word You brought knock. it up. But they take the drug. And then, because the drug has stages, which is perfectly shown to us by this video this kid has made, where by the it's end... It's young Neil from Scott Pilgrim. Yep, and the, the um, Amanda Seyfried's boyfriend in Jennifer's body. Yeah, yeah. and by the end, he's fucking dead. <laughs> so, these, ga- these guys think they're going to die. So, they're trying to get back to class to play it off cool, but then well, they they're trying to the- make each other vomit in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that was a very funny moment because they're trying to poke each other in the yeah. throat to make each other throw up, and it's like they could just couldn't consummate. That's the language they were using. And then the janitor just walks past, like, and, and then they Ugh. then they are heading back to class trying to play it off, just be cool, and they come across Rob Riggle, I think his name is. Yes. Yeah, and he's the PE he's the- teacher. <laughs> And he's like, okay, what are you guys doing out? Oh, Doug, that's you? They get hit with the giggles. And then they start hallucinating. And then they hit, holy shit. Where, I just, what Jonah Hill does by running into the drama class and absolutely nailing the Peter Pan thing, that's hilarious. But my, the thing I had the just the giggles over was Channing Tatum bursting into a practice room. With a bunch of musicians, he dives headfirst into a gong, slams his head against the bass drum. Just the, the willingness of Channing. T- like they have an extended that. version of that on the disc. It's a, they it's just the full thing. They just let Channing Tatum go. That's just awesome. the willingness of Channing Tatum to receive head trauma due to musical instruments. I haven't seen someone dive towards a musical instrument like that since watching Trey called dive off the stage on a David Letterman show. <laughs> it's insane. And then he th- then he goes to the science class, then he's going through all these sums in his head. It's just four? Repeated ad nauseum, <laughs> yeah. You brought up Rob Riggle, and Rob Riggle is an actor who a little often goes a long way for me. I have a kind of, uh, like, when he works, he really works, but when he, when he doesn't work, he can be really abrasive. Mm. But for me, he's kind of like the secret MVP of this movie. Like, I mm. don't know if I'm going to actually select him for my MVP, but he's, he's... He's perfect in this dose. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's exactly the... He's the... It's funny because he's the person who I am replacing with Lithgow. Really? But, yes. Hmm. I will we, not we can get have that rid conversation of, I'm sorry, I will there. not get rid of Ice Cube. Ice Cube oh, is the, great yeah, here. The Ice Cube role is too tied into the stereotype of the angry black captain in yeah. a buddy cop movies for you to replace it with a white actor. Mm. Um, but the Rob Riggle, I think, is just... He sells everything. Like, he's got this kind of, like, deranged yeah. look that he, in his eyes, like, every time. And by, you, by the time you get to the end where he's, like... He's the supplier. Yeah. Yeah. It's... <laughs> It works, and that it works when it it shouldn't work for me. 
to mm. my tastes, it shouldn't work. But like so many things in this movie, stuff is working that I'm not expecting to. And that is one of its quiet joys. I do love the all the stuff in the drama class. How this this drama teacher is just going on and on and on about how to mine work out of grief. Yeah. And it's just mm, perfect. Well, it's a, it's no a really strong supporting cast. I mean, that's Chris Parnell that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. But, um, you know, Ice Cube as well is like just a showstopper. It's such perfect casting for that role. Uh, and some of the the best lines in the movie go to mm. him. Um, I like the bit where he... <laughs> so Jump Street is being operated out of this former Korean church, and they've got like... So, like, this movie blows my mind, but it's in canon with the original series. Yeah. So it w- that is the church that was used for the original 21 Jump Street program. Then, after that ended, it was taken... It was operated by a Korean church, so they've got Korean Jesus up above the pulpit. Yeah, I don't know if that was like a real thing or something that the movie added. I I suspect the latter, but like the way that there's this ongoing bit with with Korean Jesus where Ice Cube (laughs) gets really angry at Jonah Hill (laughs) for praying to Korean Jesus because he has other things that he needs to do. He's got more shit to deal with. Yeah. Um... Also, uh, who's playing the uh, principal? I had the name uh, in my Jake, head just... Jake Johnson. I yeah. love how he's just hanging by a thread. That he's like, if you punch one more gay black student, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit about that element of it, the school element of it. Because like, mm. the movie is a parody of buddy cop movies, obviously. But it's also a parody of high school movies and teen movies. Mm. Um, and it's a parody... In, in both genres of that sort of classic 80s style of it, your Lethal Weapons or your John Hughes. And I think that that's a, it, it's a canny blend, and it's, mm. it's canny because they actually bring the two together in such a way where it becomes, weirdly, the emotional spine of the whole thing, being this, yeah. like, friendship drama. Yeah, I, that's true. I will say, as someone who graduated high school from high school only a year before this movie took place, and you guys were still in high school when this movie takes place, um, I like they really overstate. Yeah, they really overstate the uh, you know social progressiveness of the average high school experience. I feel. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's specifically a thing they're trying to say about. American high schools, which even then I call bullshit, but that was not my experience. I, th- I feel like it's more it's more commentary on young people yeah. generally being more socially aware and socially progressive, especially as the 21st century has worn on. But like, I think that's one of the moments where it kind of exposes that all of the people involved in the making of this movie and choosing that storyline were over the age of 30. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It wraps around to being a hello fellow kids moment. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but that's a. It is. It is something that American fiction seems very invested in, and maybe it's more of an American thing. But sort of the very easily defined high school cliques. Yeah, that there was, are the jocks and the nerds yeah. and the goths and the preppies, and that's just not 
something that I ever saw on display uh, at any Australian yeah, school I went it's to. It's not nearly as socially stratified as that, I nor so specific. Is, I think there were there were friend groups, of course. I think it's more to do with the fact that a lot of American high schools don't have uniforms, and people are allowed mm. to wear their own styles, and that is sort of brought. So you're you're suggesting perhaps it's because of more self. Into so, high school. so you're suggesting there's more self-expression? Yes, but when it comes to Australian high schools, I don't know if it's something necessarily about the Australian Australian culture, or if it's it is more to do with. But you don't see it expressed uniforms. in the media of other nations either. Like yeah. U- UK teen high school stuff, you don't see like the goth click and the jock click. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. The Americans just have an obsession with social stratification. Americans like their stereotypes. They love their stereotypes. Well, they they also have a uh, they lionize high school in a way that a lot they of do. other people like the homecoming do. king and queen and the you know Prom. everyone being obsessed about the local high school's sport team and the cheerleaders and all all of that stuff. Like, there's a pageantry to. High school. There's a pageantry to a lot of American stuff, which is coming from an outsider is Weird. bizarre to watch. I think that the Romans called it bread and circuses. They distract the people from their real problems by throwing a, a big theatrical experience every now and then, and eventually you just hope that they forget they don't have free healthcare. Yeah, that'll do That's, it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> For the amount of football those people play over there. But, to be fair, they wear body armor while they're doing it. But at the same time, there is something in terms of watching a high school movie from America, which is sort of comforting. That oh, you yeah. are seeing, oh, everyone is in a box. Everyone, you know where this person's coming from. You know what the hierarchy is. You understand. And if they're not in a box, you don't have to pay attention. There's a structure to American high school movies, mm. which is really comforting to watch. Like, you know where you stand. Well, when I watch movies like this, I try to put myself into the position of not one of the important students, just one of the one of the other students. What would I be like, say, if I witnessed what appear to be two grown men, one of whom is in a Peter Pan costume, the other is some sort of chemical. Potassium nitrate. Potassium nitrate. Beating the crap out of one another on stage. What shall my response be? Elation? Confusion? Will I want my money back? They didn't pay. That's true. The point of a high school movie, the teen movie, like, it's kind of like a slasher movie in the sense that the formula is kind of the point. It's part of yeah. the cell. You know, it's old, faithful, reliable teen movie. You know the beats. And that's kind of like seeing that script get played out in all those different ways is kind of what makes the genre so appealing. You know how we, in horror movies, talk about what's the podcast on this going to be like? What is what is the podcast in-universe based on this going to be like? I'm fas- I would be fascinated to hear what outsiders have to say about two grown adults pretending to be students. I, if, this e- if this ever got out, like, <laughs> we're talking congressional investigations, we're talking, like, ice cube in front of a senate committee <laughs> i would love that uh, no joke his character in front of a senate committee on education brilliant well that's how pissed he off just in his own office 
with yeah. his own offices. Imagine how pissed he'd be in front of the people who control the country. Mm. Um, and to be fair, Janko and Schmidt are his worst offices. I just love the idea of like Janko being interrogated on C-SPAN by Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a great mental image. And he doesn't understand old thing. How, the poor boy. How? Yeah. How would he? How would he even acquit himself? I have no faith that he'd be able to pull it together. Mm. He, he, I think Schmidt would melt like an ice cube in the heat. It would be quick. It would be merciless. Mm. Well, I actually feel like we've gone through a lot of what I wanted to talk about. 21 Jump Street, but there is a big thing that we haven't talked about, which you have you have actually already broached a little bit, Harley. It's that this is in canon with uh, the original series, and they bring back the two members of the... Well, actually, three members of the original cast, but two of them in the most exceptional way possible. Like, oh, yeah. It is... And it was Johnny Depp's clause for his appearance. Yes. Johnny Depp kind of infamously was very unhappy on 21 Jump Street and finally got out of his contract at the end of the fourth season. Um, and apparently, yes, it was his his uh, one ask coming back for the, the movie that he be killed off. Brutally. But it's such a... It's such a... I, just quickly to contextualise, I said that there were th- actually three performances. The one... The the extra is the uh, the female cop who they convinced to give them the really fancy car from the impound mm. lot. But what what works the most about that cameo is that he's there for so much of it already. Like yeah. that they're they're on screen for way way earlier than you think they will be because they're playing these sort of undercover well, they are undercover DEA agents, but they're in the ten percenters gang. Yeah, they're in the bad guys gang. They're playing these, you know, rough and ready drug dealing bikers essentially and with all this facial hair and like fake noses and prosthetics and things and so johnny and depp has been is... in there for a long long time and so johnny depp and the other guy like sorry to that guy but i'm, I'm look johnny depp did a lot of stuff and you didn't but uh <laughs> that they're, they're in there almost from the very start of the movie like they're right there from that first sequence mm. in the park and uh it's kind even... of a it's kind of a brick joke too because the the Johnny Depp character, when they're being harangued by uh, Janko and Schmidt when they're uniformed bike cops in the little yeah. shorts, they're uh, they're having a go at them because they look so young. Yeah, and he's like, "You two are cops, yeah, and I'm a DEA agent." Yeah, <laughs> but like the turn of that at the end, I remember the whole theater just erupting. Like it was such a great beat, such a great reveal coming at exactly the right moment and then it completely subverts it again by immediately killing them off they and like die give, so badly and like giving them this long-winded like telling each other how they valued each other this friendship in a very <laughs> sort of again 80s teen drama kind of way almost again poking fun at the the series that spawned this movie but like i i just the fact that it's canon is so <laughs> intensely funny to me because 21 Jump Street, the original series, like you said, was dead serious. But the world somehow is evolved into this nonsense. Did you guys know that that cameo was there? That that was I part knew of it? it was I knew, I knew that there was a cameo. I didn't know it was going to be in the first one. 
Um, so when it happened, I'm like, yes. I, I knew that he had a cameo, and I knew that he sort of started, he starts yelling at people, but I didn't expect, when he got shot through the throat, my initial thought was, but you, um, but okay. You, you didn't know that was him the whole time. I didn't know that was him. The disguise reveal was a reveal still. Yeah, yeah. I knew he was in a disguise. I just didn't know that he was was in the entire movie that whole time. Yeah, I didn't know he was that guy. Yeah. Yeah, I actually think, if anything, the second movie is better because Mm. it leans into some of the wackiness and the absurdity even more. You get Uh, a really... I've seen the post-credit thing. Yeah. Jesus Christ. You get a really great... uh, subplot with um jonah hill and ice cube that is a lot of fun uh it it and and by placing it in a college you sidestep a lot of the there's a lot less thorny yeah still thorny because they are cops still Mm. but you know yeah oh well it's just a yeah there's just a general like you know dishonesty towards the people that they're entering into friendships and romantic relationships with that is always a little bit Mm. weird um is there anything else that you guys would like to add, or do you think we've pretty much um, said it all? Well, there is the bit, the moment after they get the cool car, their immediate thought was, run each other over with it. <laughs> <laughs> I love how in the car chase, they have to keep getting out of cars and getting into other cars. Okay, I do have to say, the idea of the learner driver car car chase, that's fantastic. I also love how the learner driver teacher is... Sees them peel out of the school and it's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, he doesn't care anymore. He's past that point. And Rob Riggle gets his dick shot off. That's just objectively funny. Well, speaking of, uh, we do have an IMDb parents guide section this week. We haven't in a while. Severed penis. Severed penis. No, severed that's penis. something that would obviously show yeah. up. Uh, but... Uh, for the uninitiated, the IMDb Parents Guide section is when we talk about the prudish and or pervy entries in the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie we're talking about this week. Uh, there are a few entries here. The first of them is in Sex and Nudity and appears to be referring to that scene. Two police officers arrest a man and one shoots him. Okay. Sure. I guess it leads to... Less detail than I've grown I... to expect. I guess it leads to nudity? Yes. You see the severed penis. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, There's a a disturbing lack of detail in that entry, I think. Mm. Yes. Well, that's what makes it so strange, is that it's literally just recounting the violence, not not anything else. Uh, In the frightening and intense sequences section, both police officers fight on stage in a school play after one overheard the other insulting him behind his back. In a later scene, he tells the other officer, I would have taken a bullet for you, hinting at the fact that their friendship is over. Oh, no. That is frightening and intense, John. I don't know if it's frightening, it's intense. Unable to vomit a drug that two police officers ingested, they become manic and frenzied. They hallucinate that a coach turns into an ice cream cone, then melts, and they finally fall asleep. Hmm. Yeah, to be fair, that would be a terrifying trip. Oh yeah. Uh, Alright, so now why don't we each go around and say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast, Patron Saint character actor john lithgow knock knock who's there (laughs) i'm gonna start us off and i will say that my mvp here is ice cube i think he's just such a scene stealer throughout he is an exceptional uh supporting performance here uh great comic relief 
has some of the best lines in the thing. And he just works so well as a counterweight to the nonsense that Hill and Tatum are putting out. Um, I also think it's just, it's very clever. It's very clever writing. Um, it's just a lot of fun that the way that they're subverting that trope of the the angry police captain who you know fifty fifty chance in one of those old movies of them being an African American. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna go with Ice Cube. I think it's impeccable casting. Uh, in terms of my favorite scene or sequence, I am going to go with hmm, that drug trip sequence. Like, it's the funniest part of the movie. It's the part that I laughed the most. I mean, we talked about, obviously, the bit where they're talking to Rob Riggle, and, and that's a lot of fun. The bit where Channing Tatum is in the music hall. But I really love how <laughs> how Hill just freaks out on the track. Uh, the track and field mm. field just, as like, throws the baton hits <laughs> yeah. someone and just starts like completely com- going completely off the wall with it. It's a lot of fun. It's deeply stupid. It's absurd. It's wacky. Like there's no chance that they would not that would still be attending that school after mm. that point. But um, it's it's just a great example of this movie's sense of fun and sense of humor. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint, character actor John Lithgow, uh, I am going with the drama teacher. I'm going with the Chris Parnell character who is running the drama lessons and is sort of very self-importantly describing all of the different drama techniques in uh, less than sensible ways. Uh, I think that John Lithgow could do a lot with the sort of little small uh, underplayed bits of humor that Parnell does a great job of just sort of lobbing them out there underarmed, but I think Lithgow could do just as good a job. And, you know, that like that bit where he was like, I should probably intervene, but I'm not. <laughs> like, as, <laughs> as he's watching the fight play out, like, it's it would be a great fit for him. And I, I, you know, you can't recast Ice Cube because of the nature of the role, and you can't, I don't think, recast... Uh, I don't think he fits as Riggle. I know that's, that's Sean will have the argument in the opposite of that, but um, I think that he fits quite well as that character. Uh, for me, I have to say my MVP is Channing Tatum. Uh, not only does he have outstanding chemistry with Hill, he also works, works really, really well with the rest of the cast. This is one of his first out-and-out comedy roles, and the, the man has such a talent for it. When, he has, when he's asked to go vacant, and himbo-esque, he does it. And I love the little moments where Janko begins to put things together. Like, pieces start to click, and I I think he's one of the movie's best assets. Um, My favorite scene of sequence, it's the entire drug drug trip. Um, From the coach melting in front of their faces to all the stuff in the musical, and yes full-on walloping a dude with a baton to the head. It's great stuff. And I could just sum up that scene with four. Who I'd recast with John Lithgow? Yeah, it's got to be the Chris Parnell drama teacher role. I was immediately thinking the Nick Offerman role, but that's too small, and you want to give him a little bit more to do. And to be fair, the drama teacher role is a small supporting one, but I think it's something that Lithgow is definitely well-suited to. He can go into the histrionics, he can go as ridiculous as that character needs to. And he has that sort of ultimate actor's actor sort of energy about him. And to twist that into something 
worthy of both humor and derision uh, would be a very, very funny uh, performance by John Lithgow. I'm gonna, for my MVP, heap on the praise that was given to Channing Tatum, because when he wants to play himbo, he does it in a way that I don't think any other actor can. There's just a look on his face that he gets when a character of his doesn't understand something, which is inherently hilarious to me. And his chemistry with all of the actors is fantastic. I know that he's been in a lot of things, but he really needs to get a new agent and get some more, you know, more stuff. Holy shit, he was in Bullet Train. Yeah. Uncredited, but he was a passenger. Yeah. Yeah. And for my favorite scene or sequence, it's the drug trip because of all of the reasons Lawson described. The fact that it just allows those actors to do whatever the hell they want. And it dovetails into the absurdity that makes this movie good. And this movie is always at its best when it is being absurd. For who I would get Lithgow as, I understand the desire to get him as sort of a turtleneck-wearing drama teacher, sort of is up himself. But I love the idea of when he comes into the movie as the coach, he's sort of, you know, he's a PE teacher, so he's sort of respectable, but over the course of the movie, he just devolves into a coked-out madman. And I think that is such a fun potential energy for John Lithgow. Mm. And it's an energy he's played before. I, I think it's an energy that I always love to see from him. So I have to go against the grain on this one and say that I would have the coach be played by John Lithgow. So uh, now we're going to cast our Muppets 21 Jump Street. Right, we did forget about that, didn't we? Um, oh, the coach is Sam the Eagle. Nah, he wouldn't get nearly as stupid. Okay, let, Rob. let me just say, I, I actually think, okay, I've got a couple of ideas here. I think you're right with Link Hogthrob as the coach. I think Ice Cube stays Ice Cube. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, Schmidt and Jenko are um, Rizzo as Jenko and Gonzo as Schmidt. Yep, 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 100%. Um, Kermit is the Johnny Depp role. No, no. No, Johnny K- Depp Kermit, stays. Kermit is Dave Franco. I feel like, uh, I don't know. Because I can just imagine Kermit, like, you've got the whole other puppet for that biker guy. But the no, prosthetics no. start coming off, and it's just Kermit underneath. Kermit is the principal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going, like, Bunsen Honeydew as the drama teacher. But surely he'd be a science teacher. No, it's just his vibe seems to fit that. Yeah, more. that's fair. He does have that sort of self, self-important air. Mm. And plus, he can mistreat Beaker in a drama class as well yeah. as he can in a lab. I suppose you make Miss Piggy Brie Larson. I guess. I guess so. Or do you make Miss Piggy the mother of Schmidt? Oh, yes, Swedish cause... chef is Schmidt's dad. Yeah. Yeah. And then you make, like, Janice Brie Larson. Yeah. Yeah, that would actually make more sense. No, no, no! One of the chickens. Ah, uh, Gonzo. Gonzo. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Carmela the chicken. That would make sense, yeah. Yeah. Who has the Dave Franco role? See, I could see that as Kermit. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah. That Kermit is yeah, that character. that does work for me. I think it has to be Johnny Depp and that other guy reprising their roles from 21 Jump Street. I was supposed to go to Berkeley. (laughs) I was supposed to go to Berkeley. So now we are going to put it to a vote. Whether or not we are a pro 21 Jump Street podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? 
Uh, I'm saying yes. I think this is a, a great time. It's a lot of fun. It's very, very funny. Um, and uh, I, th- I think that it is a really creative and subversive way of bringing back one of these long dormant franchises that really didn't need to come back, but actually doing something transforming, transformative with it that justifies its existence. And that's something that the movie itself even even comments about. Um, it's something that it will comment about even more in the, uh, the, the sequel. But it's just it's one of those movies that shouldn't work on paper but does and uh, that's always impressive to me and you know i found it very entertaining when i watched it in cinemas when it first came out i find it very entertaining now and um yeah i'm going pro yeah i think you make some excellent points there it's going to be a pro from me because what a magic trick like you said this should not work on paper it is a frankly stupid comedy with a batshit premise based upon a series from a while back that took itself dead seriously. And what it does is basically kick that series in the teeth on its way striding over the line. And it's all the better for it. And it's funny, it's witty, the chemistry of our two leads is off the charts. And yeah, I just had a really, really great time. Yeah, uh, it's a pro for me because you have to really do something special to get Lawson to like a Jonah Hill role. And I think it succeeds. It succeeds. It does something really special with putting Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill together. Not only is their chemistry great, but the chemistry that they have with everyone else in the cast is fantastic. Rob Riggle is used perfectly and doesn't overstay his welcome. Ice Cube is genius. The cameo is absolutely phenomenal and exactly what it needed to be. It dances close to some really upsetting stuff, but it never forgets that it's being purposefully absurd. And that's what I really want from a comedy. Sure, there's a place for a comedy that is just being a satire, but sometimes you just want to laugh at funny shit happening. And that is what this is. It's is just a really funny, clever film. So, there you have it. We are a pro 21 Jump Street podcast. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at ExtraDudeTheKandyCounterfeit, John and myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about 21 Jump Street? What do you think about the original series? What do you think about all the disrespect that this movie placed on that? Uh, And what do you think about this one? What do you think about its sequel and the potential uh, other sequels uh, indicated at the end of the second one? So, all of that to our Twitter uh, you can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind, on certain podcast apps, it is for specific episodes, and on others, it is more of an on-the-whole podcast comment. I know that on Apple Podcasts, it is commenting on the whole, I believe, on Podbean, it is specific episodes. Uh, your mileage simply varies depending on what service you use. But please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. In the Robot Run future, the machines have taken the joke from the end of 22 Jump Street, and ran with it. We are currently up to 39 Jump Street, the electronic target game. Uh, There's several more sequels that they have to get around to, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, AI is a terrifying thing sometimes.
the single-minded drive, the obsession to complete a list. I should have seen this sooner, what this kind of list-based obsession would bring. It brought a whole civilization to its knees. Is this an implication that I am responsible for the robo-apocalypse? You know what, Lawson? I think it is. Look, trains on parallel tracks, man. Trains on parallel tracks going to the same place. Okay, Lawson, what have we got cooking this next coming week? Because you've sent us a list of some things that we are planning out, but you've listed this one as mystery film. So Uh, I want to know. We'll be doing a very, very, very different type of movie than the movie that we watched this week. In fact, a, a different movie than any that we've done recently. Uh, it is the 2011 financial drama Margin Call, uh, starring every middle-aged white actor you can think of. Um, <laughs> Kevin Spacey, uh, Simon Baker, Paul Bettany, um, Jeremy Irons, Stanley Tucci. It's a good cast um, about a, a bank on the eve of the global financial crisis. Uh you got to love conf- it. Lawson loves his money-based movies. I do. Money, money, money. Um, if you would like to follow along at home and you live in Australia, then I'm sorry, but you cannot. Unless you, uh, <laughs> unless you like me, um, own a copy of it physically, uh, this movie it has been locked away from you by the uh, whatever algorithm decides where these movies turn up on streaming services. Uh you guys, Harley and Jean, are going to have to find it uh, internationally using a VPN. It's yep, available on numer- in numerous places. Uh, but, uh, yeah, look forward to it. Yep, so what was the name of it again? Margin Call. Yep, so join us next week for when we discuss Margin Call. I'm sure it'll be a thrilling exercise. Till then, I've been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis. Jean Lewis.